This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. How do you make the successful leap from professional sports to law and then headfirst into federal politics, including usurping a former prime minister and safely held Liberal Party seat? I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Zali Stegall, the independent member for Oringa, who, in just a short couple of years, has stormed Canberra with an agenda to put climate change action into gear. Last year, Zali introduced a climate bill to Parliament with the hope of legislating a net zero emissions target by 2050. It's been backed by big business, but is it the bugbear of the Morrison government? Zali shares her perspective. Zali, thank you for coming on board to join uh, the Leadership Lessons with Women's Agenda. My pleasure. I want to start off with, with where you are now, essentially, but then jump a little bit back into uh, where you've come from and your previous achievements. Of course, winning Warringah in 2019 is a bastion of blue since 1992. What did that say to you about politics and the current state of politics in Australia? I think what happened in the 2019 election here in Moringa uh, was the electorate is a smart electorate that understands the challenges and opportunities that we face and needed an alternative choice. I think we already had growing level of discontent with our representation back in the 2016 election, but it obviously hadn't quite reached a sufficient level. Um, but for me, the 2019 election was a real watermark moment for Warringah in really taking control of how it wants to be represented, what are the issues that matter to us locally, um, and what can our contribution be to the federal political arena. How important was climate change in it, do you think? It's not the only issue, but it is an issue that's going to impact so many of our sectors in the future. So we know that waste and sustainability is a primary concern to many people in the electorate. When when I did a survey post-election, it was very much the first issue that came up, whether it's in the form of climate change and emissions reduction or waste, sustainability and water. So these are all interlinked, you know, environmental issues are all interlinked. Obviously, what really matters locally is also the state of the economy and business opportunity. And what's really clear now is that the two are actually go hand in hand. The world is transitioning to low emission technology. And for us to have a strong economy in the future, we need to embrace those opportunities. I'm going to come back to that, Zali, but I want to go back a little bit into your career um, because, of course, you're, you're, you're really well known, essentially, for being a top-level skier. You are, as I understand, our most successful alpine skier ever after winning the bronze medal in the 1998 Winter Olympics and the gold in 1999. Congratulations. What did you learn from that that stands you in good stead now? A lot of my character was built with sport, with skiing. I definitely accept that. I started ski racing when I was four. I was very young, but I was always one of those really competitive kids where I gave it 110%. I trained really hard. I listened to the coaches and I really put in. You know, I don't like cutting corners. <laughs> I like doing the full sets, the full reps, everything that needs to be done. Um, and look, I never took no for an answer in the sense of, 
anyone trying to tell me what my limitations were or what I couldn't achieve. So when I was 13, I, you know, I had a dream of wanting to compete at the Winter Olympics for Australia. Now, uh, you know, a reality check might have been that that's going to be rather difficult. You know, Australia's not known as a ski nation. But from my point of view, I was one of the top juniors in the world at the time. Um, I had, you know, I was prepared to work hard. I knew it didn't come easy, but I totally felt that sport and success is a pyramid and you start with a lot of people try at the beginning but ultimately it's only those that are truly dedicated talented prepared to work hard prepared to sacrifice that ultimately you know someone has to get to the top and I felt why not me Uh, and that's driven me all along you know I I left school when I was 17 to go to my first Olympics I studied by correspondence I did my HSC by correspondence I did my uni degree by distance education Um, it it was all about being very focused um, and prepared to do the work so you I said you have great sporting success and 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 really good academic success and then you actually become a lawyer what drew you to the law uh, well, I guess maybe family tradition. My grandfather and my, my dad were lawyers. Look, at school I did debating as well. So I was always attracted to um, making a good argument, you know, sort of being able to advocate for a, a point. I was. I think when you're younger you tend to be very black and white in terms of the right and wrong of things. And then as you grow you learn to understand that there's grey. I did a Bachelor of Arts in Media and Communications by correspondence while I was still skiing and that um ironically that was before the days of the internet so it meant again carrying books and faxing back assignments and doing things like that which seem rather strange now um but then when I won when I retired from sport I was really keen to do law and uh in those days there wasn't many kind of distance education options for law so I did it through the legal practitioners admission board in Sydney Uni uh, and the Law Society, and uh, I was really attracted to understanding the logic of law. You know, the, these are the rules that regulate our lives, our society, and understanding the theory and how they're applied in practice and having that process of redress. I was always someone very attracted to, especially with sport, that there is a process by which you can win and lose, and as long as there's a fair process applied, I can accept the outcomes. You know, in skiing, it was all about the clock. In law, it's a little different. It's about the judges. But um, still, I think that was what attracted me to it. So that's interesting there. You know, you said you were attracted to it because there was a process by which you can win and lose. And, you know, uh, you know that, that dictated the ending. Do you apply the same thing to politics? Because, of course, you practice law and then you move into politics. Is, is that was the same attraction or a different attraction? Yeah, look, the politics has been really interesting because I find it's I'm finally putting into play everything I've learned throughout all my careers. So, you know, with the sporting career, you develop certain characteristics, but also, yeah, it's more in the public maybe arena. Then as a barrister, um, it's very adversarial, very similar to sport in that you have to be well prepared. You're only as good as the work you've put into your case on the day in front of the judge but then when you're at that bar table in front of the judge you you have to be on top of your game you have to be able to think on your feet and respond to queries and you know you have to have a good strategy about how you're planning on running the case to get the best outcome possible so I found as a as a politician uh, I'm applying both 
kind of careers to really achieve my goals in the sense of advocating for policy issues. How do you do that? How do we sway more people to be willing to take action? How do we, you know, you have to listen to the other side. So being able to understand uh, the alternate arguments being put forward, so alternate policies in a political context, and then strategizing how do you get to the best possible outcome and what are the ranges of outcomes that are possible on issues um, and how do you best serve sort of the, the constituents because at the end of the day, you know, a member of parliament is representing, I'm in the House of Representatives, it is to represent my community. So, again, looking at how do you best consult and represent your community. So you're in the House of Representatives, yeah. What's your experience now that you're in there of being a politician? And I'm particularly asking that with a view to how many, how do we increase the number of women that are politicians? To encourage more women to think about it is don't uh, be intimidated by the idea that this is a male-dominated environment because the more you let that be part of your thinking, the less we will change it. We're talking about your work, but let's look at work a bit more broadly. Um, I mean, work and the practice of work is really being upended by the pandemic. What's your view on what work will look like going forward and how will that impact on women in particular? It's an interesting one. So I think in some ways there will definitely be a shift to a lot more, you know, online meetings. You know, the whole corporate travel for meetings I think has will will change dramatically because the the time wastage of travelling for a two-hour meeting compared to zooming in for a meeting is 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 just dramatic you know dramatic gains um the work from home i think there's going to be an element of that now a lot more accepted employers have seen that productivity doesn't automatically you know is not um impacted by more flexible work practices which is good but we have to be really careful that you're not then in a situation where women are shouldering we know that data shows women still shoulder the vast majority of domestic duties. Um, so we don't want women working remotely and shouldering, you know, managing, uh, you know, uh, parenting commitments and uh, household um, duties as well as holding down their jobs. So there has to be a much fairer, sh you know, sharing of all responsibilities in relationships you know they need to be fair partnerships um so breaking down those roles um but i think on the whole the next the new, you know, new generation next generation i are more and more savvy as to um how that can be done but i do think post-covid will you know there will be a shift of um the amount of you know workspace and flexible working arrangements which are all good for long-term you know, from a reducing emissions point of view, from a, from a carbon footprint point of view, offices don't need to be as big. There's less travel and less, com less time wasted in commuting. I think a lot of people have welcomed that. Your platform was climate change, mental health and honest government. So I wanted to explore each of those a little bit with you. So let's start off with climate change. You introduced the climate change bill last year. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Sure. Well, so for a key goal for me was actually to end the climate wars in Australia and the bipart and the the very polarized debate we've had around it, because this is a really important issue that's going to impact every sector of the Australian community and society and economy in the future, or now and into the future. So for me, a big goal was putting in place a sensible solution, and so looking to other jurisdictions and other countries of what where where did we go so wrong <laughs> essentially um, so the climate change bills are modeled on legislation that was passed in the UK in 2008 and it was passed with bipartisan support and has been really effective um, in the UK it survived the bipartisan support survived 10 years of brexit fighting you know so they it really is testament to acknowledging that long-term priority of a sensible plan uh, so the climate change bills establish um, they legislate they seek to legislate uh, a commitment to net zero by 2050 and how we get there by um, having five-year emission reductions budgets so every five years you have a, a new, an updated go, uh, emission budget and each of those budgets would look at all the sectors that need to move so whether it be transport energy agriculture manufacturing all areas um, that and that that be informed and the government have the advice of an independent climate change commission which is really important um, but then parallel to that mitigation work we absolutely need to do the risk assessment and adaptation work. So we have huge areas of our coastline that are exposed to climate impacts. Uh, to, uh, we have, you know, drought, bushfires, flooding, extreme weather event impacts. Um, we know local governments are really struggling with uh, the level of exposure they have for public infrastructure and, and they need a coordinated plan. Um, so that's the other side of the bills is implementing a real coordination strategy around assessing risk and adapting and planning for it. So um, it's very sensible legislation. It's not it's not technology prescriptive. It leaves it to the government of the day, but it it in it increases transparency and accountability of government and departments, which I think is really important. You said there at the beginning that one of your aims was to end the climate change wars. Where do you think we are in that war now? I mean, to me, it feels as though there has been a change of tone from the Liberal government around climate change. Would you agree? Uh, yes, look, I think we are. Uh, it's only a minority of members of parliament now that are either climate deniers or uh, really, you know, um, holding back policy. The problem is they tend to be very loud and disruptive, those members, um, and they tend to hold the coalition back. So uh, we need to be really clear about what, you know, wh where we need to go. And the Prime Minister needs to actually, um, I would say he needs to step up and actually, you know, do more than just talk about, you know, he needs to show us that he understands the seriousness of the challenge ahead and the need for action to commit to. Um, yes, I think it's moved. I think he, you know, 12 months ago when I talked about the climate change bill in question time, I had the parliament, you know, I had the prime minister, you know, waving his arms around saying, you know, he won't commit to something that would wreck the economy, which is completely untrue. But now he's retired 
rhetoric is to say that he'll commit to net zero as soon as possible and preferably by 2050, but he wants to see a plan. Now, of course, he's been in power for, you know, the coalition has been in government for seven years, so they should have a plan by now. It is very clear this is what we need to do. And so if there is any lack of having a plan, it is entirely on their shoulders. But the beauty is this is not too hard. We know we have the technology already to get us there. We simply need to implement the right legislation. Um, So the pressure is on for the government to legislate net zero and get us there. The international pressure is undeniable. The election of Joe Biden um, and him making it a priority for the US to rejoin the Paris Agreement makes it clear that uh, there's nowhere to hide. Um, Australia we, you know, Australia, 70% of our two-way trade is now covered by net zero um, goals. Uh, we absolutely need to get on with it. Okay. Um, one of your other issues, like I said, that you campaigned on was mental health. So through the prism of the pandemic, we know that um, poor mental health has been a real issue this year. Do you think in terms of what's, of what's happened around mental health that this has removed the stigma of mental health even more than before? I think it's a gradually changing thing. I think uh, um, obviously we've, we still don't completely talk about all the aspects of mental health though. You know, mental health becomes a bit of a big umbrella talking about, which covers a lot of things. Um, we have two clear aspects that we need to focus on. There is the mental high sense so mental health where it's linked to suicide, for example, depression, um, and what are the factors impacting that? What can we do for suicide prevention? But there is the other side, which is the clinical diagnosis, long-term mental health um, illnesses, um, where we still don't treat mental health illness as we would a physical illness. So a physical Ill- ailment, um, or you know whether it's from an accident or a long-term illness is visible is more visible um, and is treated in a much different way to long-term mental health um, diagnosis and we still don't have sufficient uh, beds and facilities in our hospital system to really cater for that so I feel often when we talk mental health we're, we're overlooking a little bit of the two there's two sides of it that we need to be focused on and I think the you know one side, because the statistics when it comes to, um, you know, suicide prevention is are so drastic, we tend to focus on that more. Um, but to me, both sides are just as important and need proper, st- you know, structure and um, uh, and support. So I think we, we can still do a lot more with that. Um, one of your other issues that you campaigned on was, was honest government. Um, so every year the Edelman Trust Barometer comes out, and I always have a look at it, which generally shows that trust in politicians is heading south uh, globally, not just in Australia. Is this a one-way journey, do you think, or can it be turned around? Uh, well, I think uh, it is a very big focus of the crossbench. And so Helen Haynes introduced a Federal Integrity Commission and uh, a bill for a professional conduct of members of parliament and their staff. I seconded those bills because I very much support that. We desperately need in Australia a Federal Integrity Commission. We need some accountability of members of parliament, their staff, lobbyists and department heads. Um, these are tough times for so many in the community uh, and we're seeing spending of public money done really uh, I would say 
questionably in a number of instances and we're seeing that at state level as well as at federal level. I've been quite shocked with some of the um, reports around for example the bushfire relief funding seeming to be used for pork barreling purposes. We all, we've all heard of the sports rorts at federal level. I think that's grossly inappropriate um, and wrong um, that in a situation like bushfires where um, we're talking about people, community survival. They have lost everything. Um, that the self-interest could get in the way of proper assistance, I find quite sickening. Um, so, yes, we need to up that accountability. I feel strongly that more independence will raise the in, uh, accountability of parliament and politicians. Um, uh, it, it's very interesting. As a barrister, you have a duty to the court. You are an officer of the court. So your duty to the court comes above your duty to your clients, which means you can never mislead the court. And I think that's a really important distinction that your duty is ultimately to the institution that you're part of. And I do think members of parliament should have a duty to the parliament that goes beyond and above any duty to a party. Um, and I think there's a real conflict of interest that comes into play there. Good. You see politicians, well, you are a politician, and you also see them up close more than most. So seeing them up close in action, do you trust them more or less now because of your experiences? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, oh, look, I guess my expectations weren't high, so I can't say I've been disappointed because I would be, you know, I, I, I can't say I had high expectations. There are some incredibly good people in there that are very much focused on delivering for their communities. But I have unfortunately also seen um, self-interest and self-promotion and that, you know, looking at politics as a career path to more ambition and more power really gets in the way of doing the right thing and delivering for your community. So seeing some politicians up close is not always, um, yes, it's, at, at times has been incredibly disappointing. Um, but I balance that out with those that I know have their heart in the right place. <laughs> now, despite all of that, I mean, I said, you know, the trust goes down in politicians every year, etc., and, and in other institutions like media, for example. But I would say now, and I'd be interested to hear what you think, that actually our trust in politicians and, and the political institution is actually probably higher than it ever has been because of the way uh, the, the political institution, if you like, has dealt with the pandemic. Would you agree with uh, to an extent, yes, and it's really interesting. Uh, it's been an interesting shift in with sorts with the bushfires and then the pandemic in terms of um, politicians being prepared to uh, more openly base the decisions on scientific advice. So, you know, in the bushfires, it was very much the experience and professional advice from a, you know, uh, the, the the fire chiefs and and how do we deal with the very real and present danger. With COVID, it's been the chief medical officers who have. Obviously, their role is linked with being extremely cautious and putting the public health at first priority. So. We've seen politicians, premiers and the prime minister, be prepared to enforce policies and decisions that maybe would not they would not normally do, you know. Um, and we've seen the Australian public accept 
real major incursions in their civic liberties for the greater good, for public health good. Um, and I think that's been really interesting uh, to see. Um, so I, I hope we can see more of that. So take the party politics out of it um, and actually put the common sense scientific facts at the core of the decisions that need to be made. And decisions, they're not always easy decisions, but they're done for the right reasons on the right basis. That must be encouraging to you, because if I think about how we've talked about science over the last 10 years, particularly in relation to climate change, you know, there's been a lot of, I would say, undermining of science, you know, and, and, and the scientific voice. Do you think this reflects a change in that? Well, absolutely. We've seen a lot of undermining of science, and we're still we're not still not there yet, though. The prime minister still does a distinction between, you know, if I think of him pulling up someone like Craig Kelly, he pulls him up on the COVID misinformation and the vaccine, but he hasn't pulled him up on the misinformation around climate. So they're still picking and choosing which science they want to support and which they don't. Which I think you you don't have that luxury. You know, science is science. Facts are facts. You can have opinions. You can have different responses but you can't change the underlying matrix so I think yes there's grounds to be positive science has been shown to prevail um, we've seen Australia do incredibly well with COVID by taking the tough early action now we need the Prime Minister to step up and do the same on climate and emissions thanks for joining us for this latest episode of the leadership lessons Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this series on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating. And to find out more from us, visit www.womensagenda.com.au. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.